Welcome to A New Kind of PD, teaching channels podcast where we tackle challenges in education and provide ways to inspire and engage in meaningful professional development. I'm Erica Snyder, Engagement Coordinator for Teaching Channel, coming to you from our location in San Antonio, Texas. This week, we'll be discussing culturally responsive teaching and the brain with author Zaretta Hammond and Teach's own Catherine White Humanist. We'll talk about the science behind why this is important, and as always, we'll close the show with how to inspire PD about this topic in vibrant, collaborative ways. Thanks for being here, and if you're listening live, jump on into the chat room where we'll be posting links to materials related to today's show. Class is now in session. Hi, everyone, and welcome, Zaretta and Catherine. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited. Um, let's get to it. Zaretta, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how um, you became involved in culturally responsive teaching? Sure. I have, I have been an educator for the past 25 plus years and really started out as a writing teacher. I taught composition in the classroom at the high school level, community college level, and I started to notice a lot of patterns amongst my students who were struggling who was uh, falling behind, who was coming into my class without the requisite writing or critical reading skills, and I started to see a pattern. It's mostly my low-income kids, my um, African-American, Latino, growing diverse student body um, were struggling, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I started to uh, do a lot more thinking about what was getting in the way for them and started to do more equity-focused research for myself, started to apply some of those techniques in the classroom, started getting results, and eventually started sharing those out with my colleagues in my department and then started to do more and more teacher PD and eventually, you know, traded out my own classroom for a classroom of teachers. So I've been doing some form of teacher education uh, for the bulk of the last 20 some odd years. So that brings us to culturally responsive teaching. Um, we love the fact that you're tackling this and tackling the brain part of it, the science behind um behind what is happening with culturally responsive teaching. Um, but we also even talked about a little bit uh, before we started recording that, that there's some misconceptions about what it is. So could you go ahead and give us an, an overview of what is culturally responsive teaching and why it should matter to all educators? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. And I usually start really with what it isn't. Uh, and because I think too often we confuse culturally responsive teaching with multicultural education and social justice education, and then there is culturally responsive teaching. And a lot of times I see teachers using them interchangeably when they are each very different things. Multicultural education is really about um, honoring the diversity that you have and you know, facilitating social harmony and interaction, whereas social justice is about helping students develop a critical lens on society and inequity whereas culturally responsive teaching is focused on building the cognitive capacity of students and doing that through the affective filter as well as improving cognition. So it is the only one out of the three that actually focuses on student learning. 
Now, the other two are really important and play a role, but they're not interchangeable. And so it's important, I think, for people to really understand um, what the differences are. So that is an important piece. The other piece I'd like to uh, emphasize in terms of misconceptions is CRT, you know, short for culturally responsive teaching, is a motivation tool. So I hear a lot of teachers talk about it that way. Um, and it's not. It's actually a tool, again, to improve instruction. Or I hear them talk about it as a classroom management tool. All, all of those leave out the real powerful aspect of culturally responsive teaching, which is the ability to grow students' brain power using culture as a cognitive scaffold. So it's really important in terms of its ability to close achievement gaps. And we have, have a lot of discussion in schools these days about achievement gaps, and we're looking at data as part of our staff meetings. And the more we know about how to improve instruction, the more we'll see those gaps start to shrink. So I think that's why it's important. You know, what that means and how you do it, I think, is the piece that a lot of people are figuring out. Here's the other thing I want to say about why it's important. A lot of people think it's simply important for diverse students or students of color. Um, but the reality is, culturally responsive teaching is important for white students as well. Because we want all our students to be able to navigate our culturally diverse world. They are going to be graduating, not just you know college and career ready, mm -hmm. but ready to actually be in a a multiracial, multilingual, multicultural setting. So it has a benefit for them as well. And I think that's an important piece to help people um, understand. Right. And you've got a handout that we're going to attach to the podcast, too, that sort of lays out the differences between the three types of instruction that, we, that you just discussed between CRT as well as, as the multicultural education um, so yeah. if, you're, if you're listening, make sure you head on over to um, our page and, and grab that awesome chart that yeah. will, help, will help break down sort of the definitions for you. Zaretta, as you can imagine, a lot of folks are wondering, okay, so what is the impact of taking this on as an administrator or as an, a teacher or a professional learning community? Can you talk about the impact that you've both maybe researched and witnessed within culturally responsive classrooms mm -hmm. and schools? Yeah, I, I think that the primary impact is helping our struggling students who may be dependent learners, meaning you know they can't carry most of the cognitive load most of the time when they're required to. And we know these students because they kind of sit and wait for us to kind of scaffold every step of an assignment. Um, they seem to be lost in terms of how to get started or when they get stuck, how to uh, you know, get unstuck. And the goal is really to help students like that become independent learners. And because of the equity issues, a disproportionate number of low-income kids, English learners, and students of color are in that category of being dependent learners. So the real impact for school is being able to help students actually grow their brain power using culturally responsive structures and processes so that they 
start to move from being dependent learners to independent learners using their cognitive cultural resources. And I've actually seen, um, I, I actually got an email from a teacher that I had worked with. Um, we had an intense PD session over a week, and we had three intense days included in that week where we were able to roll up our sleeves and create some uh, instructional lessons and some materials that are culturally responsive. And I got an email back from him um, probably a few months ago, right before the summer. I and mean, he just talked about the results that he had gotten when he had applied these uh, strategies in his classroom, these processes and these structures. And he had a class that was 20%, he was a math teacher, middle school, only 20% of his students when he did the pretest coming into the class were proficient. And he started to use some of these techniques that would actually help them accelerate their own learning. And as a result, when they did assessments at the end of the school year, they were, those students were scoring um, much closer to proficient. A good portion of them were improficient. And um, many of them were, were out of that very, very bottom rung. So the impact is we start to see students be able to move toward proficient learning. And that's part of being an, a more independent learner. That's great. Just to hear about the different ways that classrooms are being impacted and sort of individual examples. And, and something that really struck me in your book is you say that this is a mindset. Right, and so you worked with this teacher for a week. Can you talk a little bit about how you cultivate that, or how does one sort of begin to adopt this kind of mindset? Yeah, so the way that I talk about culturally responsive teaching is a lot of teachers focus on the strategies. You know, just give me the strategies and I can do those. As if teachers are neutral in the process, and I remind them that Richard Elmore talked about the instructional core the content, mm -hmm. the teacher, and the student. So everybody has to be mindful of how they're in relationship with each other because culturally responsive teaching has two important elements, creating a high-trust, low-stress environment and improving information processing needs because relationships are the on-ramp to learning. So being able to really help teachers get that big idea, I share with them 10 core concepts of CRT and some of those are certainly about the mindset, understanding that relationship is the on-ramp to learning is one of them. So teachers have to be in the mindset that it matters what my relationship is to the student. It's just not technically come in, sit down, and do your work. It's that I have to actually be building some rapport with that student. And there are a couple of reasons why that becomes important, and I help teachers see that. The brain really focuses on whether I'm in a safe environment before it actually is ready to learn. So cortisol is the stress hormone. If there are too many of the stress hormones you know, rolling around the student's brain, then it kind of shuts down the learning, that prefrontal cortex or executive function and all of that higher order thinking happens. And instead, we want to shift the student to more of that happy, um, brain neurotransmitter of oxytocin, the bonding chemical. And that bonding chemical, when people are in rapport, they're in a relationship, they're getting along, reduces 
cortisol and gets the brain ready for learning. So if students are coming in, they're not feeling um, like they're being seen or heard or valued or seen as the other or different, then that raises cortisol. So to actually get learning going, you have to reduce that with that relational piece. And that's a cultural piece. A lot of teachers think, well, I've got 19 different cultures in my class. What am I going to do with that? And the thread I ask them to hold on to is collectivism, that a majority of students coming from different ethnic and national backgrounds have this thing in common, collectivism, that there is a group orientation, that interdependence is important, that comes with conflict resolution skills, so that these are assets that the student brings. And the more that you can kind of organize your classroom around collectivism, the more you're going to see students settle into that kind of relaxed alertness where they're ready to learn, low stress, high trust. So that's one of the key mindsets I really help teachers understand, how to invest in building that relationship so you can get the right brain chemistry going so that you really can have students hang in there when the, when the learning gets hard and it gets more challenging. And that's very connected to uh, Carol DeWitt's notion of uh, growth and fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. and so just helping um, teachers see the interconnection is kind of like one example of a mindset that they must embrace. And then from the mindset, there are structures and processes that we start to have them put in place. Yes, yeah, so that makes me think about, you know, how I had uh, the same set of students as, as my counterparts down the hall, right? But sometimes the students were completely different in one environment than they were in the other environment, for example. So in social mm -hmm. studies, the LA combo, I had a great relationship with some kids that maybe the math teacher down the hall was just like, I, I don't understand. What are you doing? What's different? So if I'm understanding the science behind this correctly, you're saying that that it's it's really changing the way the chemistry in the brain is working in order to make the students mm -hmm. able to pick up that harder content. Yeah, and, and the idea is the way that you're changing that chemistry is by being in relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, culture so eats curriculum in, every time. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and this is the idea of the warm demander, right? It's not just being friendly. In my book, I have four different types of teachers, that, and, and I talk about how each is positioned or not positioned to really um, operationalize and, and promote cultural responsiveness in the classroom. The warm demander is the ideal kind of teacher persona and mindset. And that is that the teacher has personal warmth and connection with students. They know the student's name. They know something about their background. They have found a way to connect with the student, have a sense of rapport that's building. But at the same time, they have um, this demandingness that's not authoritarian, but is holding the student to their higher potential. Like, I know you are so much more capable than this C work you're handing in. And do, saying that with love. And so that teachers then become warm demanders of students' cognitive development. A lot of teachers are using the term warm demander, but it's more around classroom management. Here we're talking about helping students kind of move into the zone of proximal development. Vygotsky talked about that as being the ideal place where the students stretched 
and learning happens. But we also know it's where your dendrites grow. The more you have cognitive challenge, the more your brain is going to grow these uh, dendrites. The more dendrites you have, the more neural pathways, the more information you can actually process at a faster and deeper level. So being in that VPD, that zone of proximal development, becomes really essential. And you can only do that when you're in good relationship with the student. You can only invite them in, particularly if they've experienced failure before, where they feel marginalized. So being able to have that rapport with them that goes to the next level, right? It's not just friendliness. It really is a kind of um, alliance that you have with the student. I think sometimes that's what makes the difference. Because when you ask students about it, those are the sorts of things that they tell you. Well, why do you like that teacher, even though that teacher seems to be a little hard on you? Well, that shows she cares, right? Mm -hmm. So that they are picking up that relational piece, even in that kind of high demand that the teacher puts on them. And that's very different. I want to say this. It's very different from having high expectations. A lot of teachers say that, well, I have high expectations. High expectations exist in you. Right? When you have an active mm -hmm. demandingness, that is something you are articulating to the student. Right? That I know you're capable of so much more, mm -hmm. and I want to help you achieve that. So being able to kind of differentiate between the two is really one of the hallmarks of a teacher who's getting that different relationship with students going. That creates the foundation for culturally responsive teaching. So in your book, you mentioned that a lot of times teachers are getting one-off trainings um, that may or may not actually apply to um, CRT, um, or if it is, it's, it's often presented again as a way for, for looking at behavior issues and motivation. So if that's a reality for teachers and they're listening to you say, it's really important that you make those synapses fire in the kiddo's brain, um, how, how do they get started? How do they start embedding culturally responsive teaching into their own practice? I think one of the first things to do is really be able to kind of break it down into this relational piece and then start to think about how are you getting students to process information more effectively? How are you getting them into academic talk that is accountable? So I think one of the first things is helping students actually leverage a key cultural learning tool, and that is talk and wordplay that a lot of collectivist cultures, because they come from an oral tradition, have used language and words to carry meaning and to help with memory and to help with understanding. So bringing that into the classroom would be one of the um, you know, easiest things to do. Whether, and it can be as simple as getting students to debate an issue. Right, getting students to um, be able to have kind of social games that they play that allow them some instructional conversation. So some way that students are able to chew on the content, I think, is one of the important things. One of the misconceptions is that for teachers to bring culturally responsive teaching into the classroom, it always has to be talking about race or culture, ethnic culture. Right? Mm -hmm. You have to have artifacts or you have to be talking about heroes or holidays. But if you actually focus on cultural learning tools, and they are fun students, funds of knowledge, kind of their memory, what they know. And the other is, as I just talked about, uh, talk and word play. Another is puzzles and 
pattern, but the brain loves to figure things out. And then perspective, who's telling the story? What perspective is a, a information coming to you from so that you understand the motivation of the one telling it to you? So when you can bring some combination of these into the group uh, activities you're having students do, you're on the road to actually doing culturally responsive teaching without even having to think about, oh, I've got to actually have artifacts on the wall. But if students' brains recognize, oh, this is the way I process information at home, it becomes a culturally responsive practice. So it could be more about the methodology and less about the content. I mean, a, good, a healthy well, mix would be good, but, but also thinking it doesn't have to be necessarily the yeah, the piece of reading, think, how you're presenting the reading or what you're doing with the reading that goes along with it. Exactly. And it doesn't even have to be a reading, right? Mm -hmm. So this is that difference between multicultural education, right? We're bringing mm -hmm. in diverse authors. You don't even have to do that. So there are four ways that you can, well, I, I'll, I'll share three ways that you can diversify your content. So you can contextualize it. So imagine that you're in biology because they're not doing a lot of reading of articles or novels in biology, but you still can make it culturally responsive, say you're studying water. So rather than just say we're going to go through the biology of water and break it down into its molecules and that, we're going to contextualize it. So you can look around in students' communities and say what are the water issues there? Or you can take something that's on the national front like the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Mm -hmm. Once you put it in context, you can actually talk not only about the biology of water, but the social nature of water, the politics of water. And then that gets students really engaged. And it gives them kind of a cognitive hook to understand the biology that you want to present. The other way you can make content culturally responsive is to uh, what they call decolonize it, meaning Rather than take a Eurocentric perspective on something, say, like met, uh, mythology that you have to teach because it's standard at a particular grade level. I had a school I was working with, uh, and they were about 85% Latino. And what they did was they approached the standard around mythology through Mexican and Central American mythology. And then they used that to actually start to look at what were the similarities with Greek and Roman mythology. So they hit the standard, but they actually just, rather than having coming at it and saying we have to learn these, they actually hooked into what the students already either knew something about, but had a relevance to them. So they, that kind of flipping it on its head was kind of decolonizing it. The other thing you can do is radicalize it. And that simply means whose voices has been left out, whose perspective has been left out. We see this a lot in how it Zen's work and, you know, historical uh, accounts of events, you know, bringing in the perspective of people of color or women. So you have to think about what your discipline is, but certainly in math and in science, you can bring in, you know, ways to use cultural learning tools for the processing of the information, but also for making the particular content more relevant to students. So I think it's a little bit of both and. And there's so much going on in the world today that is 
can be brought into this type of teaching. A lot of, lot of different, exactly. for good or bad, there's a lot to add to this conversation right now in education that hopefully teachers are tackling with some of your methods. Yeah. And here's the thing I would say, too. You don't have to bring the challenges of the world because that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for <laughs> kinders or for, you know, lower grades. But it doesn't mean that you still can't contextualize mm-hmm. right, by looking at something that ha- this is how, you know, how does your grandma measure, right? How do your, what are the, what are the cultural ways that they're learning, they may le- be learning about plants and animals, right? Your grandma uses herbs traditional medicine, things like that. So you can bring those things, and that's a different way to contextualize. Contextualizing doesn't have to be the problems in the world. That's more of the social justice piece. And contextualizing is just, here's a way that I do that in my community or in my home from my cultural perspective, and how do we bring that into the classroom? So putting it in a context, what are the issues around that? And then I think it's easier to see how you can bring that um, to the lower grades without it being, you know, political. I always forget about those lower grades. Fault of a high school teacher. <laughs> That's right. Those babies, they are down there. And, and it's a good place to start. It's a great place to start, yeah. Well, and, and just building off of that, I mean, coming from a middle school perspective, I think sort of social justice was always at the center of a lot of our discussions just because kids were sort of coming into their own and questioning a lot of things. Um, so I appreciate the concrete examples in terms of contextualizing and making the learning meaningful to kids depending where they are. So I'm going to adapt my question a little bit because I'm wondering, um, one of my big motivators, and I think a lot of folks, is just like, what is the impact on kids and the community? Um, I think, you know, school settings are certainly um, a dynamic community setting that have several parties um, that are participants. We've got families, we've got teachers, we've got students, we've got the surrounding community. What are we going to hear from students? What are we going to hear from families and teachers in a school that's really committed to having culturally responsive teaching Mm -hmm. as part of their mindset, Mm -hmm. as part of their being? I think that's a great question because what you'll hear starts with the teacher and the parents. What you'll hear is they become a team that they form an alliance. I call this in the book a learning partnership. So that schools have to reimagine the ways that they bring parents in. And they have to reimagine it on two levels. Parents are the child's first teacher. So they have to kind of have that cultural humility to say, I know you know your child. You've raised your child. Your parents have raised you. There's some cultural knowledge that allows you to bring children to this level of development, healthy and, you know, uh, um, strong, spirited, and what are those tools so that we can bring some of those into the classroom and be more culturally responsive. So listening to parents in new ways and appreciating what they have to offer, but also being able to be in partnership so that when we're inviting them in, they feel like school has some semblance of the community represented. And not just with artifacts, but the way that we do things. For example, a very individualistic way that the dominant culture does things is kind of to be very technical. So it's like just get down to business. If you come into the parent comes into the office, you know, what do you want? What do you need? 
versus in a collectivist culture, the first order of business is social. It's to connect with them, tell them about yourself, who are you, have a, whether it's three minutes, five minutes, it could be 15 minutes. But having some social connection, because that we know builds oxytocin. So collectivist cultures for a long time have understood some of the neuroscience, even if they weren't able to name that. They understood that social lubrication built a positive relationship for people then to, to build on, to do business, to take care of whatever they needed to take care of. So schools could do a better job of being more collectivist um, so that parents feel like they, that school is a place where they belong and they really can be in partnership with teachers. So if a school is doing culturally responsive teaching, if they're actually operationally operationalizing the practices to be more responsive, you would actually see this different way of interacting, you know, coming into the front office or when you went to uh, back to school night or to open house. You would see some of those collectivist uh, processes. I think the other thing that you would see is a real focus on building relational trust amongst the adults in the building. That there's ritual, that there are ways that folks are connecting so that they could do the hard work of helping every student actually uh, reach standards and reach their highest potential. So that staff meetings would actually have some social element to it that mm -hmm. actually creates a, a on-ramp to doing um, the kind of technical work of improving instruction and looking at data, all of those sorts of things. So I think those would be some things you would see. They would also be very comfortable talking about um, kind of the dominant narrative, microaggressions, the ways that we don't intend to make students of color or low-income students or English learners feel less than, that they are aware of the social political context and actually have created counter-narratives to kind of push back on that. And they have ways to engage their colleagues when someone said, makes a statement that reflect some deficit thinking about a particular group. It's just not okay to ignore it. You would actually see that healthy adult community be able to, to respond to that in some productive ways. So I think those are hallmarks of what you would expect to see. And again, it takes it out of the realm of, or oh, there are just some special strategies, that it really is a way of being, in addition to using structures and processes, tools, and strategies in instruction, but building that community is a key part. Sure, sure. And not to shy away from sort of the challenges with some of this work, right? So it seems that leadership would need to be bought into adopting this mindset, these practices, these techniques, and really opening up this space to have some more vulnerable conversations, perhaps. Um, so in, in addition to publishing your book, because I could imagine I could read this with my um, instructional leadership team. We could have productive conversations. But I'm just wondering, how does it get to the next step? Like, what are some of the ways that you're, you've been supporting educators in this, their professional learning in this area? How do you help move schools toward that level of um, competence and having those open yeah. conversations? I think the first order of business is helping them understand that it's not about you know, a set of strategies, per se. So I usually, when I'm working with a school, I usually um, have them sign on to do an arc of work that's a year, over the course of a year. 
So what I don't do is go and do, I'm going to do a one-day PD, and now you're going to be culturally responsive. It doesn't work that way. But it's not so magic? What's that? It's not magic? It doesn't magically happen like that? No, no magic. No, no magic. I actually talk about it as magic beans, right, or the, or the secret scrolls. Just give me the secret scrolls, right? There are none of those. Instead, what I use is an inquiry method. So it's a combination of kind of traditional inquiry, you know, what's the problem of practice, what's an inquiry question we have. If we look at our data and see we have a disproportionate number of suspensions among African-American boys, how do we start to understand that that's a symptom of the kind of culture we're creating at the school. So starting to do that reflection about practices, uh, is it that teachers uh, misinterpret students' interactions as defiance or being off task? So we help teachers actually be able to broaden their interpretation of student behaviors and be able to now put in place other practices that actually can start to bring those numbers down and that they're tracking the progress. They're trying things and they're seeing what starts to get a better response. Doing similar things around instruction. Are students processing information at a higher level or is it all very kind of drill and kill and it's not challenging their brains? You can't scaffold them into that. So teachers are doing this over the course of a year and while they're doing that, we're in conversation about what are the mental models that get in our way. So we don't do unconscious bias work because I feel like a lot of schools go that route. Or we're going to be culturally responsive, so we're going to talk about race all the time, or we're going to talk about unconscious bias. So a leader, to get this work started, doesn't have to actually buy in. You can't do it if the leader's not bought in. You know, as an individual teacher, maybe you can be trying some things, but as a whole school, it has to be the leader leading this. And it isn't about having delicate conversations, quote unquote. It really is about setting up counter-narratives. The analogy I like to use is, in America, we would have never gotten beyond segregation and Jim Crow if we waited for everybody to change their mind and look at their unconscious mm -hmm. bias. Instead, what we did was we put up some counter-narratives. We changed those into policies and laws that says, all men are actually created equal, despite what you know we said in the Constitution where some people were three-fifths of persons. We don't believe that. We've moved beyond that. Everybody has the right to be served and treated with dignity. Everybody has the right to vote. And we just put those pillars in place. There were people who didn't like it. But this is just the law of the land. And over time, because we had opportunity to talk and dialogue, people saw a different reality, people came around. That's what a leader has to do. It really isn't waiting to get all the teachers on board or having these conversations. It's really strong counter-narratives. You can't mandate it, but you can inspire and you can set a path that over time people will come around to. That's why it's not a plug-and-play kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Once a school commits to being culturally responsive, they're committing to be in inquiry, doing action research, mm -hmm. having conversations that ask them to look at their practice through a variety of lenses, an equity lens, a system thinking lens, right? And on the surface, none of these sound like they're related to culturally responsive teaching because we reduced that to its lowest com common denominator, just about you hang on the wall. So if anything, I want teachers really to come away and leaders to come away with my, from my book with the idea that this is a beginning of an inquiry that may be a year long, two years long, 
but it, it's actually going to bring everybody together as a community and being able to look at instruction and unlocking the potential of students much more powerfully um, so that we don't have the predictability of who, which children are always at the bottom. Right? It's always the poor kids, it's always the English learners, but really starts to interrupt practices that are not serving them well in the classrooms. Yeah, so really, I mean, it's systems change work is what it is that people are committing That's to. That's exactly what it is. It really is through this lens of how am I using culture as both a cognitive scaffold and an affective filter. And then when I understand the social political context, right, that's our racial history, it's the history of different groups. So even if you think of English learners, right, there's a historical political context there. It's not okay for people to speak their native tongue. We used to make it illegal for kids to do that. You know, First Nation kids were sent to boarding schools and, you know, denied the opportunity to speak their native language. You know, Spanish speakers, same problems. So these are political, social political dynamics we are still paying the price for in our schools today. So we have to be able to look at things that in the system, you know, with systems thinking, but also be thinking about, okay, we use our awareness of culture as a cognitive tool and scaffold to actually turn this around. Yeah, so I mean, I would assume that in, in most of the places where people commit to, to doing this work, there are going to be some, some people that are, are not quite on board yet. So for someone that's leading this work, how do they build that momentum and trust with the group? Like what are, what are their key first steps that they should take in order to make sure that they can really engage in the work over the longer period of time with their entire yeah. community? I think building relational trust, right? Using the power of ritual for people to come together and to get to know each other, right? We know one of the trust generators among human beings is selective vulnerability. When I know your story, you know my story, we're more likely to have compassion for each other. So regardless of whether a teacher has bought into culturally responsive teaching, I think just have a leader should just start by creating the atmosphere that allows teachers to lean in and be curious about the work. And start with the spark. This is not work you can mandate. Let people know this is where we're going. And just like the analogy of segregation, you know, over time people come to it. If not, they'll, they will, you know, uh, um, find another uh, type of school to be in. But the reality is knowing that you're moving toward making sure all children are hitting the standards and hitting their learning targets and being proficient in writing and being critical readers. These are just metrics that every teacher should be involved in. So there's nothing that a teacher can say, well, I'm opting out of making sure my kids are good readers. You know, that's, that would never be okay. <laughs> Not going to go over well. Mm -mm. <laughs> right. So the reality is culturally responsive teaching isn't a program. It's a, an approach to making sure my kids are good critical readers, leveraging culture as a cognitive scaffold. How do they know that information already? Let me graph new information onto the way they already know it. So that means the teacher just has to start to pay attention to how students are using kind of cultural reference points. That, that's 
where you get in community with other teachers. So the leader isn't implementing a program when he's doing culturally responsive teaching. He's actually inviting teachers to be curious about their own practice and to leverage what assets kids bring in, ter in terms of neural pathways around how they process information to actually make their learning accelerated. So it is not the common way we talk about instruction, right? Because we talk about it in oversimplified plug-and-play terms. And, you know, I think that's maybe the hard truth of, you know, what I'm sharing now. It's just not that easy. When you want to do it well, you have to commit yourself to the long term. Are there one or two things you could be doing right now? Yeah. That will probably get you some good impact as well. Building relationships, helping students have accountable, productive discussions so that they can start to understand what they are engaged in. This is true in math, it's true in science, as well as history and ELA. So there's a misconception that culturally responsive teaching only takes place in social studies and ELA. When the reality is that if you use learning, cultural learning tools, you could be doing it in math. When you actually think about contextualizing content, you could be doing that in science as well. So this has been really informative, Zaretta, and I think that you've given us some really good information to take this work. And as you've mentioned in your book and as you've said on this call, it's learning about culturally responsive teaching and the brain is this ongoing process of inquiry. Um, and you, you mentioned a couple things that we might do in getting in started, but is there anything else um, that all of us can sort of do today to get closer in adopting culturally responsive teaching in our lives, in our professions, through our roles. Because, um, you know, educators are in the classroom, but they're also at the leadership level and the district level. And that's right. We've seen that that trickles down, right? So, is what, what, would, what is just one or two things you might recommend that we could do to just get started today? Yeah, so if you're a teacher in the classroom, one of the simplest things that I have found to get on the road to being culturally responsive is actually gamifying your con your instruction. So bringing in more ways for students to manipulate and talk about content because that way of learning is very culturally grounded. So you don't even have to name it for students, but it's the more they see that, we talk about this in terms of maker spaces, right, gamification, things like that. I think those are easy things you could start to do that even though kids don't know it or nobody would label that culturally responsive, it really is because it, it adheres to the principle. So I think that those are easy things to do. I think for leaders, being able to create counter-narratives, meaning if students have not been achieving, to actually have the equity principle and stating it that our mission, our goal, is to make sure, for example, all our uh, English learners are building a robust vocabulary. So it's for leaders setting a direction. And so that everything that folks do comes back around to building relationships, leveraging kind of collectivist principles, and then focused on moving um, a particular you know, target like vocabulary development forward. So I think they are pretty simple things you could do. And just for teachers not to be confused by labels. Just because something's not labeled culturally responsive 
doesn't mean that it isn't. And just because something is labeled culturally responsive doesn't mean that it is. Yep. So just starting to kind of build that capacity. I think those are simple things that folks can do to get started. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick pause as far as, like, the questions go. Zaretta, are there anything anything that you wanted to make sure that we asked before we close out with you today? Yeah, just appreciate you guys for bringing this uh, uh, topic, you know, to teachers. The, the other thing I really want to encourage every teacher is to create for him or herself a learning agenda. And when I do PD with teachers, I ask them to get a notebook, and every time they hear something that is kind of a new term or they recognize, oh, I really don't know how to use culture for that, that rather than letting that stop them, that they write that in their notebook and to say, oh, I want to learn more about that. So taking a real growth mindset to the process rather than letting what you don't know stop you, right? You really just lean into it, take an inquiry stance and a growth mindset. I think that's a really important starting place. And that's one element of a new kind of PD. So that is fitting to why we had you on today. Um, and we're so appreciative for it. We are um, out of time for today. Oh, geez. So thank you for joining us today, Zaretta. Remember, you can buy her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, on Amazon or on Corwin.com. You can follow her on Twitter at ready for rigor with the number four. You can follow Catherine at WG Catherine, and you can follow me at Snyder underscore Erica. Thanks to Paul Teske's Mad Garage Band Skills for providing our music and the Teaching Channel staff for all of your work getting a new kind of PD up and running. And Zaretta, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of our listeners um, for joining us. And if you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends all about us. We'll see you back here in two weeks when we'll be discussing eight ways to support professional development through video.